On May 13, 1939, on the eve of the Holocaust, more than 900 Jewish men, women, and children clambered aboard the MS St. Louis in Hamburg, Germany. They set sail for Cuba. Hope thrived and smiles abounded. They had all paid for Cuban visas, but when they arrived, officials told them that their visas were invalid. All but 28 of the passengers were turned away. Their hearts sank and fear took hold of the ship. After a few days, they set sail for Florida. The captain sent urgent cables to President Roosevelt and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, pleading to allow them to seek refuge in the U.S. But those pleas were returned with silence. The State Department ultimately told the passengers that they must wait their turns on the waiting list, which was several years long. Full of terrified passengers, the ship returned to Europe, back to the mouth of the shark. It is estimated that 255 passengers from the MS St. Louis died in the Holocaust, the vast majority in concentration camps. Immigration. It's in the news. It's in the headlines. It's a political flashpoint. It generates a lot of sound and fury, a lot of strong ideas and raised voices. And for most of us, it can be hard to sort through all that noise and understand what's actually going on, what's legal for people to do, and what's not. How do U.S. immigration rules affect people's lives? What's it like to deal with the barriers, both seen and unseen, to people who want to come or stay in the United States? I'm Lindsay Goldford Gray. And I'm Jenny Guilfoyle. And this is Inadmissible. On this podcast, we'll explore the world of U.S. immigration, from issues that come up in the news, like the border and separation of families, to things that you may have heard less about, like the strange secret world of the immigration courts. And we'll uncover how all of these things work. Along the way, we're going to talk with a lot of people with stories to tell about how immigration has impacted their lives. Full disclosure, we are both immigration lawyers. We work together at a nonprofit called Vecina that Lindsay founded in 2019. But this podcast is not going to be full of legal jargon. We're going to be using stories and non-technical language to help you make sense of what's going on with immigration. Because I think it's fair to say that most people living in the United States don't know much about how immigration works. No one teaches you this. I know that before I became an immigration lawyer, I had zero idea how our immigration system worked. So that's why we're here, to help you make sense of the world of U.S. immigration and learn how it works. On our first few episodes, we're going to focus on an immigration issue that's been in the news a lot lately, asylum. There is a lot of talk about asylum seekers coming to the United States and who we should allow in and should the border be open or closed to asylum seekers. So to make sense of all this, we're gonna talk about what asylum actually is and why we have it. Why is it a part of our laws? Why do we allow people to show up at our borders and ask for protection? Where did that come from? So to start with, what is asylum? So it's a protection that the U.S., along with many other countries, gives to people who flee their home countries and are afraid to return home because it's reasonably likely that they're going to face persecution there for things including their race, their religion, their political opinion. Asylum gives people a way to stay permanently in the U.S. and eventually get a green card and then even U.S. citizenship. 
On this episode and future episodes, we're going to trace when and why this became part of our laws. We'll also look at how it works to request asylum and what's going on with our asylum system today. To understand where asylum came from, we're going to be going back to 1939, to the Emma St. Louis and World War II and the Holocaust. We're joined by Gloria Goldman, who was born to two Holocaust survivors in the wake of the Holocaust. Gloria, thank you so much for being with, here with us today. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Tell us a little bit about the first six months to a year of your life. So when and where were you born? Um, I was born after the end of World War II on October 7th, 1949, in uh, 1948, excuse me, in <laughs> Bamberg, yeah, Bamberg, B-A-M-B-E-R-G, Germany. And why were you born in Germany? My, par- my parents uh, were survivors of the Holocaust. They were from Poland. And at the end of the war, they were, they were in Germany. Uh, that's where they were um, taken by the Nazis. And they remained there waiting for uh, a visa to come to the U.S. So they were um, liberated in 1945. Uh, my mother, both of them probably in April of 45 at the end of the war. And they remained in Germany waiting for a visa for the next uh, four years. The visa came in 49. I was born in 48. Wow, okay. And when your parents were waiting in Germany, where specifically did they live? Did they live in a camp or somewhere else? Uh, it's unusual. Uh, most of the uh, survivors that I know were in displaced persons camp. My parents got assigned a home of uh, a Nazi woman. Uh, they were given a part of the house and, and she was fine. She may have been a Nazi you know, during the time of the war. I don't know what her beliefs were. And that's where they remain um, in a town about maybe 40 minutes from Bamberg um, until they left Germany. So I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. So your parents who had been survivors of the Holocaust were then assigned to live with a, a Nazi woman? At her house, yes. So... Okay, so your parents waited for visas, and then when and how did you come to the, you and your parents come to the United States? Um, they were provided uh, visas. They were provided status as refugees to come to the U.S. We were all provided refugee status based on the fact that a cousin of my father's sponsored us, somebody, uh, someone in New York, and they came on a U.S. Army ship that were bringing soldiers back from Germany. And some of the people on the ship were refugees that were survivors of the Holocaust. And I was just uh, about six months old when we were brought over. Do you know anything about your voyage on the ship? I, I know you were six months old, but did your parents tell you anything? My mother told me that she was so sick that she couldn't even hardly care for me. And during that time, she told me that many of the soldiers were delighted in holding me and, and being with me because they were waiting to go home to see children that they had not met yet that were born while they were um, in the military, you know, military uh, helping the US. So I was pretty much taken care of by my father and uh, the soldiers. Oh, wow. 
Mm-hmm. Let's turn um, now and talk about your mother. So where was your mother born? She was born in a small town in Poland called Opato, O-P-A-T-O-W. And according to the records I found, there were about 6,000 Jewish people that lived there uh, before the, the, the place was invaded. So before it was invaded, what was her experience like sort of at the onset of the Holocaust? Well, I guess there were reports to um, uh, people, young people, that they needed to get out of there before the Nazis uh, liquidated the area and go to a, a another place where maybe they could get work and save themselves. So my mother left it sometime um, prior to when the Nazis uh, kill, uh, sent everyone to their death. Wow. Okay. So she was able to escape before they came to her town. Before they came to, they may have come and set up a, a, a ghetto. I don't know much detail about that, but that's possible. And she got out of there before they came to um, transport people to the death camps. Wow. And was she ever captured? Well, yes. She went to a place, and this is based on, I, I've looked, not everything I have. She she went to somewhere where there was work, but the Nazis did invade there. And she ended up in a work camp at that place. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, uh, it was a, a town that had uh, work camps uh, that people would stay in. And then did she stay there for the remainder of the Holocaust or did she no, go somewhere else? it was else? very, she didn't stay there for the remainder. They would move people around. And I don't know how many um, subsequent uh, work camps she went to, but at some point she ended up in Auschwitz. Did she ever talk to you about what that was like? Uh, she did. She talked about the fact that, you know, the, the um, ovens burned day and night. It was always light because of the um, the fires. And, you know, she soon discovered when she was there what those were for. And uh, she was fortunate. Uh, she You'd go through selection when you get there. And it was usually Dr. Mengele who was in charge. And he would send you either to the right or left. And in one direction, you would be going to the gas showers and be killed. And in the other direction, you were sent for work. My mother had a, a rough life in Poland uh, early on. So she was stronger than others, maybe, and able to work. But um, she bypassed having to go to the showers and be killed. And I'm not sure exactly how long she was in Auschwitz. Uh, but she got work there. And um, a little extra work, which get a little extra, um, not uh, like food or something that she would share with others. By coincidence, um, my mother's final um, camp was Bergen-Belsen. And she was on the death marches to Bergen-Belsen, which is further in Germany. And Auschwitz was in Poland. And the Nazis didn't want the uh, people in the camp to be liberated. The Russians were coming, so they they would move them. And that's pretty much what happened to uh, Anne Frank and her sister. And they died. They were probably in Bergen-Belsen when my mother was there at the end of the war, but they died. They got typhoid and died there. Wow. You mentioned a moment ago the death marches. Did your mother tell you any stories about that experience? 
she talked about it. Um, it, it, they, you know, would shoot people indiscriminately or if somebody got weak and fell to the ground, they would be killed. And my mother was, you know, had had enough and decided she had some kind of, um, something on her arm. So she threw dirt on it, hoping it would get infected and she would be killed. But there was a doctor or a nurse in the line with her who cleaned it up and um, fixed it. And my mother proceeded on the death march into Bergen-Belsen. Wow. And when she was in Bergen-Belsen, did she talk about any of her experiences there? The only thing she talks about in Bergen-Belsen is there was a lot of death and there was a lot of death that pretty much every people were getting all kinds of diseases. She, I don't know how long she was there. She talks more about the liberation and the British uh, liberated Bergen-Belsen. And they saw that the Nazis were running away and they realized that they were going to be saved at that point. But I'm not sure exactly the timing. Uh, but she wasn't there very long, I don't believe. What about your mother's family? Does she know what happened to them? Um, she presumes uh, after she left that they were all sent to, um, and I think it was Treblinka to the death camp where they were killed. Nobody survived. And that was my mother's mother, my grandmother. My grandfather died when my mother was young, so there was no grandfather at the time. And I think she had like a sister and maybe a stepbrother. There were a couple of siblings that also uh, were killed. That's terrible. What about your dad? What was his life like during the Holocaust? Well, he, my father, unfortunately, um, got uh, leukemia uh, in, um, and he was diagnosed, I think, in, I'm trying to remember, in 1956. And the doctors believe he probably got it because he, he did work camps and they would make the bombs for the Nazis. And he was exposed to chemicals. And he died in 1959. So there's not much discussion with him. Um, most of my life with my father was when he was sick. And when he died, I was 11 years old. Sounds like a terrible experience for all of you in so many it ways. Was. Yeah, it was. I remember the day the day he died. It was interesting. It was a different time. I was at school. Uh, he was in the hospital and my the assistant principal of my uh, school and I was in elementary school took me to the hospital to say goodbye. Wow. So so you and your parents came to the United States in 1949. Where did you end up living once you got to the U.S.? Well, at first they were staying with a, a cousin of my father's. I'm not even sure how they connected because I don't even know how they knew each other or how this all happened in New York, okay, in Brooklyn. And then my mother was not happy there. You know, she claimed that they weren't that nice. I don't know. You know, it might have been her uh, post-traumatic stress. But my mother had an aunt and cousins, two cousins, first cousins in Detroit, Michigan. And they moved to Detroit, Michigan, not long after we had arrived in the U.S. And that's where I grew up, was in Detroit, Michigan, um, from the time I was probably, I don't know, close to a year old, I don't recall. And when did you become a U.S. citizen? Uh, let me time it. I became a U.S. citizen uh, 
at the same time that my parents became citizens uh, by derivation, the law was that they became citizens. I became a citizen at that time. And I believe it was in, um, let's see, 1956. So, okay, I want to count this. So how many years was it from the time your parents were liberated after the Holocaust to them becoming U.S. citizens? Well, they were liberated in 45. So it was about 11 years later that they were U.S. citizens. Wow. It's a long time. <laughs> um, how has, you know, this experience of yourself and also learning from your parents and what they went through, how has this shaped your life? Well, um, a few in the 1980s, I was a volunteer for the Jewish Federation in Tucson. Um, teaching students about the Holocaust. It was a two-part program. I was chair for a couple of years, chairman for a couple of years where we would go in on one uh, classroom period and talk about immigration, uh, how people get refugee status, what are the uh, basic functions of the uh, immigration service and family unity, and just giving and talking about prejudice and, and the horrible um, aspects of that. And just and the things that happened. Then the next day or a week later, depending on the scheduling, we would bring in an actual survivor to speak to the students. So I did that for um, a few years. But then I went to law school after that, and uh, law school took a lot of my time. So I I didn't do that uh, anymore. So when you would go in and speak to kids in schools, what would you what would you talk to them about or what would the survivor that, you know, you would bring with you talk to them about? Well, when I would go in to do the overview, I would talk to them about um, the reasons people come to the U.S., family unity, escape uh, torture, uh, work, just kind of give an overview of immigration law a little bit and then talk about the dangers of uh, of hatred and the consequences of hatred and and um, and and it would be a conversation. I'd have and most of the students were high school, sometimes middle school, very seldom uh, elementary school. Although some special uh, programs that we did. Then when we went back with the survivors, they would talk about what happened to them, and they would talk about the fact that some of them were given one day where the family would have to leave their home and be transported somewhere. They didn't know where they were going. And, you know, what do you take when you're 14? Do you take a mirror? Do you take lipstick? You know, you put, the, you put that information in the heads of these children. You know, what would you take if you were given two hours to clean out and you didn't know where you were going? And some of them, um, well, all of them survived. So all of them were essentially sent to a work camp. Many of them lost the rest of their family upon uh, leaving their town. Uh, one or two, one that I recall did survive with her mother and a sister, but most of them were the only survivors of their families also. Did you ever encounter anyone who was on the St. Louis? There was one, uh, a woman in Tucson, she, her mother and father were on the St. Louis, they were German, and uh, she would go out to speak. Um, and I took her out once or twice. She, um, what happened is they were on the ship, 
they the they had visas to go to um, Cuba, and then the Cubans at the uh, last moment, once the ship was arriving, said their visas they weren't permitting them to enter. They know that they were close to the U.S. and they the captain of the ship tried to get the U.S. to take these uh, under a thousand people to come to the U.S. and our government refused, and the captain was very sympathetic, so he um, tried to contact different uh, countries to try to take these people and not take them back to Germany. Um, so they were split amongst uh, several countries. She and her parents were sent to Belgium, but the Nazis eventually um, invaded. And right away, her father was taken and, and presumed uh, killed. She and her mother were saved by a Christian group that smuggled them into Switzerland. And that's how they survived the war. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for your time, Gloria. We appreciate you sharing your story with us and that of your family and of your own life experience. Thank you so much for well, You're for welcome. Sharing. Okay. So Jenny, we've just heard two really powerful stories from Gloria about what she and her parents experienced and also about the St. Louis. So let's go back to the St. Louis for a moment. Why did Cuba and the United States and other countries turn the passengers away? Why didn't the U.S. take them in? So at the time, the U.S. had very strict national origin quotas in our immigration system. So immigration laws that were passed in the U.S. in the 1920s were explicitly racist they were intended to limit immigration of people from Southern and Eastern and Central Europe, which was very much including Jews. So countries around the world got strict quotas of visas per year and they were not high numbers. So at the time that the St. Louis set sail, the US had already used up its quota of German visas for the year. Uh, you know, we heard that uh, the captain of the ship reached out to the US and to President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt was sympathetic to the plight of the passengers, but the US didn't have any system for admitting people who were fleeing persecution and the German visas had already been used up. So even though we have words on the Statue of Liberty about taking people in, we didn't have any system at that time for admitting people fleeing persecution uh, like the passengers on the St. Louis. And other countries didn't have that either. So when you say that the German visas were used up for the year, were those specifically for, it was not specifically for people fleeing persecution, this was just anyone from Germany? Yeah, there was no system for admitting people because they were fleeing persecution. And there were visas allocated to people um, based on their nationality and the US had already gone through and given uh, out its allocation of visas for people from Germany for the year. And so they didn't allow in the passengers from the St. Louis. How did these stories like the St. Louis and like Gloria and her parents and so many others like it, how did those stories influence the creation of refugee and asylum law and policy around the world? So after World War II, we see the founding of the United Nations. And at that point, countries across the world are reeling from the horror of what had just unfolded and made a determination that from now on, people who were in serious danger in their home countries 
would be able to seek refuge in other countries that would offer protection. And that became the basis for refugee laws around the world, including in the United States. And I, I realized I did something a moment ago. I said refugee and asylum law, but we haven't talked about the difference between those two things. And so can you tell us what's the difference between refugee processing and seeking asylum? Absolutely. So those are really um, very interconnected. They are kind of two pathways to the same thing and they depend on the same definition. And this all comes back to the, the United Nations in 1951, writes something called the UN Refugee Convention. And it creates a definition of what it means to be a refugee. Um, and the powerful idea in that convention was something called non-refoulement, a French word which means non-return. And the idea is that countries that signed on to this convention were committed to the idea that they are not going to return people to countries in which they're likely to flee persecution. So they are not going to turn away the St. Louis passengers. That's the idea that comes out of the 1951 Refugee Convention. And that leads eventually in the United States, and we'll be talking about this in future episodes, uh, to the creation of refugee protections in the United States. And the United States sets up a system in which we uh, admit people through something called refugee processing. The US goes out every year, uh, the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security go out and interview people in various, usually in refugee camps around the world. So they've left their home countries, but they haven't made it to the US. They're in a third country where they're not able to find permanent protection. And the US goes out and interviews people to see if they meet this definition of a refugee that originated in the 1951 Refugee Convention. And when the US finds people who meet that definition, a certain number of them will be allowed to enter the United States as refugees. Uh, how does asylum relate to that? So some people are able to make it to the United States on their own. They either come in with a visa into the United States or they come to our, the border and ask for protection. They find a way to get into the United States. And they're afraid to return home because like the passengers on the St. Louis, they're afraid that if they return home, they're gonna be facing persecution and even death. Um, and so there's a system in place now in the United States for people to request asylum. Um, and essentially what they're doing is saying, I am a refugee. I've made it to the United States. I'm a refugee, please offer me protection. So the asylum and refugee systems in the United States are very closely intertwined. Okay, so from what I understand, refugee happens outside of the United States. Like refugee processing happens for someone who is outside the United States. They're not at a port of entry, meaning they're not at the border, but then asylum happens either within the United States or at the border. That's exactly right. Is that right? Yes, refugee processing happens overseas. The U.S. interviews people overseas to see if they meet that refugee definition and then brings them here to the United States. Uh, asylum is the system by which people who get here on their own can request that same protection. Uh, both refugees and asylees have to meet the definition of a refugee that again um, came out of the 1951 U.N. Refugee Convention. 
And so regarding the UN Refugee Convention, did the U.S. take part in that in 1951? So we didn't, not in 1951. Eventually we did, but not in 1951. We actually did not sign on to the convention until the end of the 1960s. So, um, and it wasn't until 1980 that we actually passed the Refugee Act that um, enshrined this in U.S. law. So it was 35 years after the end of World War II that the U.S. finally passed its own laws specifically to protect refugees. Immediately after the Holocaust, the U.S. did not sign the convention in 1951. There really just wasn't the political will for it and didn't pass any new laws about refugees. Um, so the U.S. did admit people who were, who essentially met the refugee definition during that period, but did in kind of an ad hoc way and not through a specific refugee pathway. So there were different groups of people brought in. So for instance, there were um, uh, Hungarians brought in during the 1950s, during the Cold War, um, who were fleeing persecution, but it really wasn't through this refugee system. So there wasn't kind of a clear pathway and plan for bringing in refugees. Um, there wasn't a system for people seeking asylum in the United States at that point. None of that uh, gets put into U.S. law specifically until 1980. Okay, so we created the asylum system in 1980. How's it working today, in your opinion? So um, the asylum system today, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of issues with it. And there, there's certainly still a system in place in the United States to request asylum, um, and we'll talk in future episodes about exactly how that works. So it's certainly offering protection to some people, but in many ways, the system is not working as intended. Um, the asylum system was already very slow in 2016 for a number of reasons that we'll delve into in future episodes. But then we have the Trump administration that came in and deliberately tried to kill the system. So Trump's immigration advisor, a man named Stephen Miller, who has uh, proven ties to white nationalists, he wanted to close down our entire immigration system and Stephen Miller had a special interest in refugees and asylum seekers. And when I say interest, I don't mean in a good way. I mean, as in a special vendetta against them. He had a special interest in making sure that nobody fleeing persecution would get protection in the United States. So the Trump administration used every means it could, including doing blatantly illegal things to end the asylum system completely in the United States. And um, we are going to talk in a future episode about the current policy at the border, um, which was begun under the Trump administration, which continues to this day, has basically cut off the ability of many people at the border to seek asylum in the United States. Refugee processing is incredibly slow. Um, you probably will not be surprised now when I say that um, the U.S. drastically cut its refugee numbers and cut funding for refugee programs under the Trump administration. So refugee processing is very, very slow and not available to a lot of people um, who can't escape persecution. We will be talking more about all these things in future episodes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.